So our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to read chapter 2 and 3 and verse 1 of chapter 4. Followed by 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. So take heed as we read God's word to us. Isaiah 2, starting at verse 6. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the, Lord, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low, upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, and upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the beautiful sloops. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship, to the moles and the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And this is the verse of the sermon serve or sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils for of what account is he for behold the lord the lord of hosts takes away from jerusalem and from judah the stock and the store the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water the mighty man and the man of war the judge and the prophet and the diviner and the elder the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter. I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, 
Everyone by another and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, You have clothing, you be our ruler. And let these ruins be under your power. In that day he will protest saying, I cannot cure your ills. For in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. For Jerusalem stumbled and Judah is fallen. Because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord. To provoke the eyes of his glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them. And they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For the reward of his hands shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, those who lead you cause you to err. And destroy the way of your paths. The Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard. The plunder, uh, the plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? Says the Lord of hosts. Moreover the Lord says... Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. That day the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms and the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans and the robes. And so it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she, being desolate, shall sit on the ground. And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. So this sermon was prepared by uh, Reverend Clarence Bowman from the Canadian Reformed Churches. This is uh, one of a, a number that he has made on uh, Isaiah. So I'm bringing to you the uh, first in this series. And the bulletin has the verse as the Title, but the title actually is God tells his people Israel to have nothing to do with man. <laughs> 
beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. People can do a lot. We can place men on the moon. We can put a home in space and survive in the space station quite reasonably for a number of months. We can talk with loved ones on the far side of the globe as if they're sitting beside us. We can perform surgery so that severed fingers are reattached. Can build computers the size of your pocket and then in them place more information than in a library full of books. We're a smart lot, us humans. Able to do an awful lot. Sure, we've done some pretty bad damage to the environment in our pursuit of discovery and comfort. But with the same resourcefulness and success that we've mastered space travel and microsurgery, we can surely conquer the challenges of pollution and population growth. The Lord, my beloved, does not agree. Almighty God moves mortal Isaiah to tell his compatriots to forget about people, to have nothing to do with people, to whistle a lower tune about the human race, to dress and act and walk and talk like those who know that man is but dust, dependent, able to live only by the grace of sovereign God. The gospel of human bankruptcy that God in mercy directed to arrogant Israel in Isaiah's day is equally directed to us today for our salvation's sake. So I proclaim to you God's word this morning with this theme, God tells his people Israel to have nothing to do with man. There's two points, why this message is, was necessary and how this message would be enforced. Why was the message necessary? The words of chapter 2, 22 tie together chapters 2 and 3. Indeed, in this one brief verse, we have the message of these two chapters in a nutshell. Sever yourselves from such a man, we read in our translations. That's not such a happy translation. Literally, God has Isaiah instruct Israel to cease from mankind, to leave the human race, forsake man, Isaiah's point is not that the people ought to sever themselves from one particular kind of person. The point is rather that they are no longer to have anything to do anymore with man as such. The command strikes us as strange, even impossible. We can understand a command to people of Israel to have no more to do with people of Egypt or Assyria, but a command to people to have nothing to do with people no, we find that somewhat difficult to grasp. Would God wish for people to part ways from each other, become hermits? Yet that's not at all a scriptural thought either. God would have people be a communion of saints. Yet this, beloved, is precisely what the text says. Have no more to do with man. In fact, the original even makes clear that it is for one's own advantage one's own benefit that one is to have no more to do with man. The prophet's point, brothers and sisters, is that people are not to elevate the human race. That is the reason why Isaiah makes a point of describing in the second line of our text who the man is with whom one is to have nothing to do. Says Isaiah of the human race, 
Breath is in his nostrils. The reference of that line is to God's act on the sixth day of creation. Genesis 2 says, God collected dust from the ground, formed this dust into a man, and, quote, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Verse 7. The result of this creating activity was that this dust in the form of man became a living being. In other words, man isn't alive in and of himself. Of himself, man is but dust, clay, dead. He is alive only because one greater than he sovereignly made him alive. And just as much as another made man alive in the first place, so is man also dependent on this other to stay alive. As is pointed up elsewhere in scripture, it is God who sovereignly turns man back to the dust. It's Psalm 90 verse 3. Who takes away from him the breath of life he once was pleased to give. What then is the human race? Quite something? Worthy of a pat on the back? It's not very flattering, beloved. Of himself man is dust, is dirt, is mud, is nothing. In the words of Isaiah at the end of our text, of what account is he? The answer is so obvious. Given that he can't even live on his own, given that he's alive only by sovereign power of the Creator, who can take that breath away at any moment, it is folly to build on man, to value man highly, to count on man. Here, brothers and sisters, is an estimation of man that is rejected in our day. Society has adopted as truth the theory of evolution. And with that theory, the notion of the survival of the fittest. Well, the human race has survived. Observe how superior man is to other animals. And so the conclusion appears so justified. Man is quite something. The human race is a pretty smart lot. Let it be impressed upon us, beloved. One can be optimistic about the human race of its one yeah, one can be optimistic about the human race of itself only if one throws out the doctrine of creation which God revealed in Genesis 1 and 2. Fix it in your minds, congregation. Man without God is of no account, is but finite breath, and so have nothing to do with man. This general picture of our text requires more detail. Why was it that Isaiah reminded Israel of the limitations of the human race? Israel, after all, was the church of the Old Testament, who both had God's word and regularly heard God's word. As a result of instruction from parents and elders, as well as in the regular instruction of the priests and Levites, each Israelite was thoroughly acquainted with the book of Genesis, and so with what God had revealed about the limitations of mankind, all knew that man was but dust, had the breath of life in his nostrils only because of the power of God. No believers in the theory of evolution there. Yet God moved Isaiah to remind Israel of what 
man actually was. He moved Isaiah to instruct Israel to have no more to do with man. Why was, the, why was that? That, brothers and sisters, was because Israel did not put into practice what they claimed to believe. One can say that you believe the words of Genesis 2, but if you don't act accordingly, your confession is empty and worthless. Why do I say that Israel did not put into practice what they claimed to believe? Consider, congregation, the material recorded in the verses surrounding our text. We learn from chapters 2 and 3 of Isaiah's prophecies that Israel, in practice, believed that mankind was quite something. More? They thought that they themselves were quite something. What strikes one in reading these two chapters is the repeated mention of pride, of haughtiness. Chapter 2.11, a verse that virtually repeat, is repeated word for word in chapter 2, verse 17. God mentions the lofty looks of man, mentions the haughtiness of men. The verses 12 through 16 make mention of the cedars of Lebanon, the oaks of Bashan, the high mountains, the uplifted hills, the high towers, the fortified walls, and the impressive merchant ships. And the point of these references is that the people of Israel compared themselves to such exalted items of creation. Formidable cedars, immense oaks, towering mountains, impressive towers, such is what the people of Israel thought themselves to be. Pride. In chapter 3, Isaiah gives us details about how this high-nosed haughtiness in Israel became apparent in practice. The men, says the prophet in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, have no hesitation to walk all over the poor, we read even about grinding the face of the poor in verse 15. Here certainly is no concern for others. Here is instead simply a concern for oneself, one's own comfort. That attitude on the part of the men of this Old Testament church was shared by the women of the church. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 16, Isaiah describes what the daughters of Zion were like. Says he of these daughters of the congregation, they are haughty and walk about, walk with outstretched necks. What are they doing? These ladies of Israel were not satisfied with the instruction of God to cleave to their own husbands and be content with them. Rather, they dressed in such a way and walked in such a way as to catch the attention of other men Instead of denying themselves in favor of pursuing the well-being of the husbands for whom they were created, the sisters of the congregation pursued their own interests. This was so very, very different from the attitude of Sarah toward her husband, Abraham. This lady of the church, says the scriptures, understood that God had placed breath in her nostrils so that she could be a help for husband Abraham. 1 Peter 3, 6 says, So Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 
Hers wasn't the outward adorning of braiding of hair, decoration of gold, and wearing of fine clothing for her own benefit and comfort, but hers was rather, quote, the hidden person of the heart with the perishable, the imperishable jewel of a gentile, a gentle and quiet spirit. It's from 1 Peter 3, verse 3. But the ladies of the Old Testament church of Isaiah's time had a whole different spirit. Instead of accepting their place in creation, instead of accepting their position beside their husbands, they arrogantly set aside God's law and pursued their own fancies. And as, inasmuch as the men were the victims of the haughty attitudes of their women, for they no longer had wives in the sense that God intended it in the beginning, were these men of the church reaping the fruits of their arrogant attitude toward the poor? Yet even that, beloved, is not all. To understand the pride that dominated the church of Isaiah's days, the prophet tells us also where this arrogance, this pride of the church of his day, comes from. God had made clear to Israel long ago that they were to be different from other nations, were to serve no idols, were to listen to no soothsayers, were instead to walk in humble obedience to God's law. But what did Israel do? Says the prophet in chapter 2, verse 6, they are filled with eastern ways so that they are soothsayers like the Philistines. To say it in today's language, Israel practiced meditation, followed the horoscopes, hinged their future on the advice of iridologists. This betrayed lack of trust in their creator, their redeemer, and so was arrogance. Materialism, too, was rampant in Israel. In verse 7 of chapter 2, their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Same is true of horses and chariots. Did the, Israel, did the people of Israel demonstrate dependence on their creator? Not so, beloved. It's just as with the eastern ways and the soothsayers. By building up around them an abundance of created goods, these members of the Old Testament church demonstrated that they did not feel secure in God's hands. They felt secure with their God only when they had houses and horses and silver and soothsayers around them. And that we know comes down to idolatry. And idolatry in turn is nothing else than arrogance. Nothing else than knowing it better than God. It was that attitude of arrogance toward God in the first place that resulted in the callousness of the men toward the poor and the selfishness of the women toward their husbands. It's not at all a pretty picture that Isaiah portrays of Israelite culture. From our vantage point, so many centuries later, we recognize it as sin, as unbelief. It was fine for the people of Israel to read their Bibles and to believe in Genesis 2, but we sense it to act as they did showed up their hypocrisy. They didn't really believe what God had revealed about man actually was. It's of interest to note then, congregation, that the New Testament scriptures forecast the coming of the same attitude. Paul writes to Timothy 
that the New Testament dispensation will witness we forgot that text, didn't we? Let's at this point look up 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, the first five verses. one but know this that in the last days perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves lovers of money boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful unholy, unloving unforgiving slanderers without self-control brutal, despisers of good, traitors headstrong Haughty lovers, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. It's of interest to note then, congregation, that the New Testament scriptures forecast the coming of the same attitude. Paul writes in, uh, to Timothy that the New Testament dispensation will witness perilous times. For, says Paul, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud. And that, we are to note, is written not to the unbelieving world, but rather of persons in the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Well, beloved, if arrogance... Confidence in the human race could characterize the Old Testament church if pride and being busy with the self is foretold for the New Testament dispensation. We surely will do well to look carefully at ourselves. Our society has much confidence in the ability of the human race. Do you? Our society demonstrates its confidence in the human race by concentrating on the self, considering the self, the most important person in one's life. How important are you to you? Our society demonstrates its arrogant attitude toward God by thumbing its nose at God and God's laws. We'll do what pleases us regardless of God's commands. Do you in practice thumb your nose nose to God's laws in order to satisfy your own desires? Recall the women in Israel of Isaiah 3. They displayed their arrogance toward God by walking with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and dressing in such a way as to draw attention to their bodies. Sisters in the congregation, how do you dress? How do you dress your daughters? The apostle Peter reminds us that the adornment of the Christian may not be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, he says, let your manner of dress, let what the others sees in you be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. 1 Peter 3 verse 4. 
We readily understand that Peter's words describe a vastly different woman than the one Isaiah describes. Where do you fit in? What to you is more important? The body or the heart? The figure or the faith? Yourself or God? You say you believe the message of Genesis 2, that man is but dust, dependent on God for life and breath and everything. Do you in fact show yourself to be hypocritical by treasuring your body? The men of Isaiah 3 walked all over the poor, had no regard for the little man, the little men in their pursuit of personal comfort and the nurture of the stomach, the self. Where, dear brothers of the congregation, do you fit in? Recall Jesus' parable of the rich fool. Said the man to himself after he pulled down his barns and built bigger ones, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But, said Jesus in the punchline of the parable, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. That is, the God who gave life in the first place takes it at his time. We understand then that the Lord would not have us to be men as the brothers of Isaiah 3 or the fool of Jesus' parable. Well then, where do you fit in? You say you believe the message of Genesis 2? That man is but dust, dependent on God for life and breath and everything. Do you, in fact, show yourself to be hypocritical by treasuring comforts for yourself at the expense of others in need? You see, beloved, to be busy with the self, to pursue the figure, to pursue the comforts, to pursue the niceties of this life demonstrates that you, like the Israelites of Isaiah's days, have too inflated a thought of what people are. Demonstrates that you forget your total dependence on God for life itself. That is arrogance. How, the second point, how this message would be enforced. Therefore, beloved people of God, hear what the Spirit of God says to the church of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sever yourselves from man. Have no more to do with man. Would you exalt man as if the human race is quite something? Would you exalt man as if you yourself are quite something? How foolish. Man lives by the power and will of God Most High. Man is dependent on God. Man is nothing of himself. In the day God takes your breath away, you return to the dust from which you were taken. So, have nothing to do with man. Do not think much of yourself. Do not be much involved with the self. That was God's command to Israel of old, and that, beloved, remains God's command to his Israel of today. In order to make sure that this instruction was understood by Israel of old, God pledged to humble Israel, pledged to spell out to Israel what mankind really was. Verse 19 of chapter 2 says, God promises that the terror of the Lord God will descend upon Israel 
so that those arrogant men with their houses full of silver and gold and their feet defiled by the faces of the poor would crawl into the caves of the earth and the holes of the ground and give up their priceless idols to the rats and the bats. And the women, says God at the end of chapter 3, would lose their outward adornments of anklets and necklaces and earrings and scarves and mascara and ointments and would find their perfumes replaced by stench, their hairdo by baldness, and their party dress with a potato sack. Verse 18. All that's left is shame, humility. That is God's plan for arrogant Israel. People shall know that people are nothing. Nor was that all that God would do to enforce upon Israel his message that they should have nothing to do with man. <clears throat> In the beginning of chapter 3, God announced his intent to take away all food and drink from Jerusalem and Judah. The deacons would have a massive task trying to look after the needy. Chapter 3, verse 1. More, the leaders of the people, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain and the lieutenant, all the leaders of the people would be taken away from Jerusalem and Judah. Israel as a nation would have no government. Israel as the Old Testament church would have no elders. Verse 2. Yet, Inasmuch as nobody must rule, would the new rulers be boys and babes? Yet, I'll read that again. Yet, inasmuch as somebody must rule, would the new rulers be boys and babes? Verse 4. Inexperienced mavericks who haven't a clue how to run the nation, how to govern the church. The result? Predictably, it would be anarchy. Verse 5. The people will be oppressed Everyone by another and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent to the elder and the base to the honorable. See there, beloved, the fruit God promised on Israel's love for self and the resulting arrogance and pride. The fruit is abusive folk, a generation disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, without self-control. Brutal and headstrong. The humbling chastisement God promised in verse, uh, chapters 2 and 3 came to pass. After the Old Testament church was urged by various prophets for some 130 more years to repent of their hard-nosed arrogance, the Lord permitted the city of Jerusalem to fall into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar took the city all the princes and all the mighty men of valor took away also King Jehoiakim, his officials, and the chief men of the land. 2 Kings 24, verse 14. The result? Boys became their princes. Zedekiah, at age 21, became king without the guidance of wizened counselors. In his cockiness, he revolted against Nebuchadnezzar so that the king of Babylon again besieged the city. This time... The famine became so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. 2 Kings 25.3 The whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water was taken away. 
the men who once had looked with arrogant pride upon the poor, and the women who once had strutted haughtily in their latest fashions, now found themselves led out of the city with ropes around their necks, bound for the shame of exile in a strange land. The new government Nebuchadnezzar set up in Jerusalem under the leadership of Gedaliah found itself the victim of abusive treatment. Gedaliah himself was assassinated and the remaining people in fright fled to the safety of Pharaoh in Egypt. 2 Kings 25 verse 25. What then was left of the material wealth Israel had collected? "'Twas all cast to the rats and the bats." Isaiah 2 verse 20. What was left of the fineries of the women? Only stench and baldness, sackcloth and shame. Chapter 3 verse 24. Was there then any reason for the brothers and sisters of the Old Testament church still to be proud of themselves, to be busy with themselves, still to think much of man? Their pride was shown to be empty. Man was nothing, nothing, a creature of no account. The people of Israel had held the form of religion, but had denied the power of it. And lo, now nothing was left. Nothing. The people of Israel were scattered in the land of exile. The Lord our God, brothers and sisters, is not unpredictable. The arrogance and pride of Israel was rooted in self-love. These brothers and sisters of old thought much of themselves, doted on themselves. God humbled the Old Testament church both by taking away their economic prosperity and by raising up an abusive generation who oppressed older and younger alike. The Lord our God is not unpredictable. As he did in the days of Israel, so he does today. Not for nothing does the Apostle Paul in his second letter to Timothy mention first that people are, quote, lovers of themselves and so lovers of money and then says that they are boasters, proud. That's the lesson of Isaiah chapter 2 and 3. Pride is the child of loving oneself. And not for nothing are the next adjectives Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3, the terms abusive and or disobedient to parents. It is the instruction of Isaiah 2 and 3, chapter 2 and 3, that the arrogance flowing out of self-love is punished with an insolent youth who grinds the faces of their seniors in the dirt. Paul has learned from Old Testament revelation that one generation's abuse of authorities, disobedience to parents, ungratefulness to seniors, unholiness and attitude is nothing else than God's chastisement upon an older generation that was caught up in self-love. And consider now what we see in the world today, beloved. Have we not seen a generation, even an era, of superconfidence in the human race? It was widely believed. People can do it. We can conquer Earth's problems, overcome life's challenges. But the promised curse of God unfolds. A generation focused on the self 
and human ability has spawned a younger generation that knows no respect for parents, that is unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited. You see, the Lord our God is not unpredictable. Herein lies a warning for the church. To accept the truth of Genesis 2, embrace that fact that we are nothing, dust, alive by the power of God Almighty, that's easy to write into our confessions. Easier to say with our mouths also. But to live the consequences, having nothing to do with man, that's quite something else. To the degree that we fail to live and dress and act in a fashion consistent with what we say we believe, to that same degree we shall experience the penalty of God as promised in the prophecies of Isaiah. It's one thing to have a form of religion. That's not so hard. But it's quite another to have the power of it. Quite another to put into practice precisely what, believe, what we believe. This is the gospel of Isaiah chapter 2 and 3. The gospel also of 2 Timothy 3. God has given his, holy, his only son to pay for sins. In his love for the redeemed, God does not want anyone lost. For that reason, he speaks so candidly, so pointedly. It is love from God that he warns us so seriously to acknowledge in word and in deed what we really are. Simply dust, alive by the power of our Father in Jesus Christ. God would have you, beloved, to acknowledge it lest there be need for him to humble you as Israel of old was humbled. Amen.